Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. How are we doing tonight? How are we doing tonight? Welcome. Welcome. This is Fantastic Fiction at KGB. I'm Matt Kressel. I co-host this series with Ellen Datlow. It's held on the third Wednesday of every month. Uh, it's always free, never a cover charge. All we ask is that you buy a drink, hard or soft, tip your bartenders, working hard to keep you hydrated. So please do that. Um, very excited to uh, have our two readers tonight. We have Livia Llewellyn and John Paget reading for us. So before we get to our readers, uh, two quick announcements. The first is, um, this is actually my 10-year anniversary of hosting this series. Thank you. It went by in a flash. I said last month I thought it was my 10-year, but I wasn't sure, but I'm actually sure this year, this month. Um, it went by in a flash, um, and the reason is is because it's amazing. You guys are amazing, and it's just like, I love, I love it. I mean, it takes a little bit of work, not much work, but it takes a little bit of work to keep this series going. Ellen and I you know, um, try to bring you uh, great readers every month, and uh, it's just a lot of fun. So it's just thank you guys for, for making those 10 years just a blast. So let's do it another 10. Uh, ne- next month, uh, just a... Uh, Brief announcements for upcoming readers. Next month, May 16th, Tina Connolly and Carolyn M. Yaquim. Uh, June 20th, Lawrence Connolly and Mary Robinette Cole. July 18th, uh, Brooke Bolander and Angus McIntyre. I think yeah, Angus is over here. Um, August 15th, Jeffrey Ford and Michael Weehunt. Um, hold on, Ellen's list is longer. Um, <laughs> September 19th, Kids Johnson and Patrick McGraw. Uh, what is it? McGraw. McGraw, excuse me. Thanks. October 17th, Lawrence M. Schoen and Tim Pratt. Uh, November 21st, Leanna Renee Heber. December 19th, Nicole Corner Stace and Maria Devana Headley. Uh, Headley, sorry. January 16th, Julie C. Day and Victor Laval. April 17th, Nathan Ballingrud and Arcady Martin, and May 15th, Simon Stranzis. So we got a, a nice lineup for you uh, the rest of this year and, and going into next, so hope you'll, uh, you'll join us for that. Uh, our first reader tonight will be John Paget. John is a professional ventriloquist. His, his first short story collection, The Secret of Ventriloquism, was named the best fiction book of the year by Rue Morgue magazine. His work out or forthcoming in Weird Fiction Review, Pseudopod, Lovecraft, E-Zine, and in the anthologies A Walk on the Weird Side, Wound, Wound of Wounds, Phantasm, Chimera, 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 Chimera. 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 Yeah. <laughs> it's pronounced McGraw. McGraw. 
It's pronounced throat wobbler mangrove. And for the mortal things unsung, Paget is also a professional voiceover artist with over 40 years of theater and 25 years of audio narration experience. Cadaver Records will soon be releasing 20 Simple Steps to Ventriloquism, a story written and narrated by Paget. Here's John Paget. Thanks, Matt, and uh, thank you, Ellen. Um, and thank all of you for coming out tonight. Uh, it's, it's great to see you. And um, tonight, I'm going to be leading you through all four stages of the mindfulness of horror practice. <laughs> Closing your eyes. Now, become aware of your environment, the air on your skin, the temperature in the room, any itches or irritations you feel, any aches or pains within or without, and acknowledge the sounds around you, any smells, perfumes, or bodily odors. Just become open to these sensations and experiences, accept them, good or bad, and then you can begin to take your attention inwards into your body, becoming aware of your feet, feeling the skin and veins, muscles and sinews, and finally, the skeletal structure of your feet, the dead bones of your future self. Feel them becoming more solid than the transitory flesh gore that covers them now, let that sensation spread from your skeleton feet up to your calf bones, through thigh bones, pelvic bones, straight up through your spine, poised and balanced, shoulder blades, flexing ribs and collar bones, the bones growing heavy, heavy, down your arms, elbows, straight through the tiniest finger bones, letting the top of your spine grow long, long. Noticing that your skull is the only part of your skeleton that feels light, as if the rest of your head, hair, skin, eyes, cartilage, brain, has disintegrated, leaving a dome filled only with the gaseous remnants of your non-skeletal self. And then begin to experience your skeleton as a whole, scanning through it upright and open. And in the midst of all these experiences, notice a deep aching within your skeleton self, a throbbing hurt. Concentrate on that skeleton ache. Let it expand within its marrow. Become absorbed, become fascinated by the wellspring of discomfort you've discovered within yourself. This is the horror of the organism. And in the midst of all these experiences, notice your breathing, the physical sensations of your breathing, moving into the second stage of the practice, counting one, breathing in and out, two, in and out, 
three in and out and so on until you get to 10. And once you've reached 10, starting again at one, and whenever you realize that your mind has wandered, bring your awareness back into your breathing, noticing the awareness becoming aware of itself and with it, a growing panic traveling through your body all the way up into your skull every time you breathe in. So every time you breathe in, your mind is becoming more and more at one with the panic until every counted number becomes a testament to self-suffocation. This is the horror of the mind. And now, moving into the third stage of the practice, you can let go of the counting and simply follow the flow of your panicked breathing. As you continue to breathe in and out, becoming aware and beginning to focus on your panicked thoughts, your panic helping you stay in awareness, becoming that awareness. Now imagine every inhaled breath drawing black fog in, a killing toxin that exterminates those stray, redundant cogitations that writhe and jerk within the emptying hull of your mind. This is the horror of being. And now, moving into the last stage of the practice, you can finally stop breathing altogether. and beginning to focus more and more on less and less. You may begin to imagine you hear something like static or even the roar of an airliner. You may feel lightheaded like you are going to pass out. Ignore these feelings. <laughs> they are normal. <laughs> they indicate that you're coming into perfect sync with your empty skeleton body and your empty skeleton mind, giving yourself a few moments to assimilate this practice. And you can begin to take your awareness into the outside world, becoming aware of the space around you and of your experiences of that space, as hideous without as within, except as the days and nights go by, that you are a walking skeleton, an ambulatory miracle of meat. New thoughts come, but they arrive from beyond the foam, beyond the foam, beyond the foamy sponge of your brain. Now, open your eyes. Thank you. story published um, it is going to be uh, it is going to be published in an anthology in an anthology of Crystal Lake uh, press I think uh, an anthology called ashes and entropy 
Okay, we can't, we don't want to use it on the podcast until after you publish it, otherwise it's first publication. Okay. So, we, we, we won't put it up. So, podcast guy, don't put it up either. <laughs> otherwise it'll screw his publication date. <laughs> anyway, thank you. Um, we're going to take a break now. Uh, have a drink, relax, and we'll be back in about 10 minutes. Which I finished and is in submission. And um, yeah, I'm, it's it's not getting the same response elsewhere. Um, the it's it's the actual title. It's called Transmissions from an Outpost of the Mega Colony, uh, and it's based a little bit on my uh, novelette on Follows. Uh, the protagonist is a young woman, Juniper, who uh, is. Uh, having a relationship with her older brother, Jules, and they're, yeah, it's a, it's a wholesome family tale, as only I could write. Um, and they're uh, the product of an incestuous marriage. This is part of a whole incest clan in this kind of dystopian version of America where everything is kind of running down and it's, it's not quite the end of the world, but everything's sliding over the edge and there's a lot of genetic manipulation going on and people shoring up walls, not just financially, but genetically. And uh, this particular group of people has been manipulating their genes through uh, medicine and uh, through breeding. And I know it's so romantic. <laughs> and so, and a hard sell apparently. And, <laughs> So uh, I took a chapter from the middle of the novel. Uh, June and Jules and uh, their parents have kind of been forced by the matriarch of the family to travel. Uh, uh, they're in Tacoma, Washington, to travel to uh, 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 Kitsap County, which is kind of a small peninsula that kind of uh, juts between the coast of uh, Washington, the inner coast of Washington State and the Olympic Peninsula, where the Olympic mountain range is and where the vast majority of their clan are traveling to for some reason. Um, and um, there's lots of talk about the end times and how, you know, this is it. They're, they're gathering, you know, everyone and shutting the gates. And, um, you know, their family doesn't really want to go. They're acclimated to the city. They're not like those other inbred families. And, uh, you know, they like their TV and their occasional electricity and their cans of food. Um, but they're forced to go back. And so now they're stuck on this kind of uh, temporary compound before they go into the Olympic mountain range. And um, this is, I, I don't even know how to describe what I'm about to read to you, but uh, feel free to get a drink or just walk out of the room. Yeah, I, I should have asked for whiskey. Yeah, I'm fine. Okay, here we go. It's sometime in late July. I'm not sure the exact date. Honestly, I don't even know if it's July. All the seasons are the same anymore and calendars are useless. There's no internet here, no television, and we can only get local stations on the radio for a few hours each day. For all I know, we're all that's left of the world. The same heavy sun in the sky, the same endless days of humanity, and forest fire drifting to us from the south, broken up only by torrential rains. Nothing changes. 
There's been no caravan further into the Olympics, no mea culpa visits to families living in the mountains and along the coasts. The night of our arrival, our car was taken away. A standard security procedure for guests of the compound, evidently, but it hasn't been returned and no explanation has been forthcoming. Our tracking implants were updated, a painful process that occurred two days after our arrival, and we've been shown the limits of our family's kingdom. It's almost limitless, to be honest. It extends far beyond the electronic and physical limits of this compound. It spans the entire width and breadth of the peninsula. There's no place that we can go that grandmother can't see. It doesn't matter that father's map was taken away. We can't get lost. We celebrated my birthday a few days ago, but it might have been on the wrong day. Time stands still at the compound by orders of my grandmother and the many branch elders who look to centuries as inspiration and not the measly days and decades. At any rate, I'm 16 now, probably, which means that any day now I'll be summoned to the main building for medical tests. They'll take my birth control implant out too. I don't wanna think about what that's gonna mean, not just for Jules and me, but for father and me. The thought of it makes me want to pass out and not only, and it makes it worse that days after days pass and there's no word from the labs, no word from grandmother. At this point, I don't care what happens. I just want it to happen and have done with it. Today, however, has been a little different from the rest. Jules and I sit on the stone path that winds around the house to the backyard. From here, we can see most of the houses on the main road of the compound, but we can't be seen. The bushes separating each yard from the one next door are just high enough to hide us from anyone in the street, and apple trees lining the strip of grass provide additional camouflage and shade. Inside, one of my mother's many Kitsap-raised cousins is giving birth in the Warren Kitchen linoleum, surrounded by some of the women's brothers and sisters and a few elders. It's not intentional. We're not running a maternity ward out of our new temporary home. But grandmother's labs are at the far end of the compound, and there wasn't enough time to take her there, or so we were told by Margaret, who rushed the group off the road into the house when she realized they weren't going to make it. Something is wrong with the birth, has been wrong from the start, but there aren't any clinics or hospitals this far out from the real cities on the peninsula, and we're not allowed to see non-family doctors anyway. That's what the labs are for. Besides, an outside doctor wouldn't have been able to stop them from having the baby, no matter what the x-rays and tests might have revealed. They already have a four-year-old daughter and are long overdue for a son to complete the pair, and so it must be. Jules is 13 years older than me, which is far too big an age gap by family standards. But thanks to grandmother's expert chemical interference with my puberty, it worked out fine in the end. As was intended long before our births, we were going to become the sexual match the family intended us to be, whether mother liked it or not. A low guttural scream bleeds out into the air, ragged at the ends as if it's being sawed away from her mouth. I scrunch my legs up against my body, wrapping my arms around them as tight as I can and lean against Jules. He puts one large tan hand on my knee, rubbing my skin with his thumb as he continues reading. It's always been easy for him to just fall away into a book or a song as if nothing else is happening in the world. Men can be like that, I've noticed. I stare up into the thin limbs of the nearest apple tree, holding my breath as another long moan seeps through the walls. The leaves on the branches are dusty green, brown at their withering edges. Between the Y of the two largest branches, a fat spider sways in the center of a broken web. It's been there for weeks. I don't know how it can still be alive. There aren't any apples to draw the insects near. They didn't grow this year. Maybe it's dead and it doesn't even know it yet. Is there a difference anyway? 
would you really know? Jules closes his book and leans forward, staring out past me toward the street. Look, he says as he taps my knee. The stranger's walking in front of our house again, head down, quick and quiet. They're the reason we're stuck here. One of the most important safety rules is you don't let non-family see you. Melt into the background, let them pass, or let the men and their rifles take care of the looters and the lingerers. My aunt howls out again, louder and longer, her sobs so deep and racked with bone-cracking pain, I'm surprised the ground doesn't shake. The stranger freezes in their tracks, the hooded head swiveling in the direction of her cries while their body spasms between fight or flight. What must it sound like to someone else who has no idea what we do in these houses? In the midst of such a quiet and beautiful day, to wade in such a frightening wound? I can't imagine. I catch a hint of animal-wide eyes, and then they're off and running. Maybe they came here to see if they could rob us, or maybe they were just lost, but it doesn't matter. Whatever the reason, that person won't come this way again. They're not going to stop running from that moment for the rest of their lives. Jules closes his book and stands up, holding out his hand to pull me to my feet. My legs are stiff and prickly, but it's worth it to walk through the pain. Anything to get away from those sounds, and so I lead the way through the brush, pushing through feathery ferns and scraggly blackberry bramble into the front yard of the house next door. It belonged to an older couple who were sent into the, Olympic, the Olympics for some secret business a few years back, leaving almost everything behind. The teenagers on this street eventually took it over, turning it into a private hangout. There's a house like this on every street, each one a private kingdom for whoever lives close enough to claim it. We slip in through the backyard patio door into the living room. Thin bodies are sprawled everywhere, reading or making out on broken couches, tinkering with the hollowed out television while in the kitchen more sisters and brothers, some of them maybe my younger aunts and aunt uncles for all I know, sit on the counters, smoking and drinking, staring at the water marks like maps on the ceilings as they gossip and complain. The stupid ones, they love to do that, tracing invisible routes with half-curled fingers and silently mouthing directions to countries in the air until they fall over and slide onto the floor. Maybe they're stupid. Maybe they're divine. Who can say? A branch of the family doesn't have as many of these super inbreds as the branches who gather like cobwebs in the valleys of the mountains and line the edges of the westernmost coast. So grandmother sends for one or two every now and then, studying them, performing her experiments, bending their DNA like origami in her endless quest to perfect our clan. When I see them standing there in the half-light, urine running down their legs, eyes blank and dull, it's all I can do to keep from weeping with joy that those walking sacks of damaged flesh are not like Jules and me. We got lucky. I don't think whatever is currently coming out of my aunt will be one of the lucky ones. We make our way to the master bedroom in the walk-in closet. It's Jules in my private space, with our name on the slats of the wood door carved in neat block letters and a do not disturb sign hanging from the worn brass doorknob. There's no window and electricity has long been shut off, but there are candles and a saggy twin mattress covered in pillows, a large locked box filled with jewelry and candy taken from other abandoned homes, and a small pile of books and magazines that grandmother left for us in the house. I guess I wanted to duplicate what I had with the lion, but it's such a pale comparison, it makes me ashamed. I didn't know what I had until it was gone. Jewel lights a candle, then slips his hand between my legs, but I gently push it away. All desire bled out of me that day in Ms. Mrs. Bergstrom's workshop, along with father's semen dripping onto my feet. And even if I wanted to again, I refuse. The thought of my aunt on the floor, 
legs splayed apart, writhing in her own sticky blood. That will never be me. Jules shrugs, then lays back on the mattress and pulls his cock out. I spit on it, and then as he strokes himself, I nestle beside him on the pillows and flip through the wrinkled, faded pages of a fashion magazine. Women like no other women I've ever seen crowd the pages, in clothing I've never seen on any human being, in cities and countries that no longer exist, lands of endless riches and delights. If they do still exist, they look nothing like that anymore. My eyes gloss over the small print. In the candlelight, the letters look like quivering, quivering insects. Everyone's skin is so perfect, so unblemished and soft. I wonder where all those women are now. What happened to them? Probably not so soft and open and ripe, but transmuted and taken by old age, casualties of myriad plagues and super, super storms and civil wars, rising waters, starvation, loneliness. Meals for civilization that is eating itself in the ground it lives on to death. Next to me, Jules shudders and moans. Dropping the magazine, I reach out, slide my fingers down his stomach, and pass the thick hair to his balls. He pushes my t-shirt up, and I move my breast over his mouth, letting him suck and bite the nipple until little ribbons of semen shoot out of the swollen head of his cock, catching the candlelight as they arc and fall. I still love that moment, the shuddering of his body, the sudden extra flash of heat washing over him, the vibration of his voice against my skin. You were made for me, Juniper, he whispers as he falls back against the pillows. That's not my name, Jupiter soundlessly mouths to no one at all. I grab a piece of cloth, sniffing it to make sure it's relatively clean before wiping him dry. I rub it over the stiff and stained carpet too. Although he's come on it so many times in the past weeks, I don't think it makes much difference anymore. <laughs> After we shed the rest of our clothes, I blow out the candle and we toss and turn in the stifling dark, drifting in and out of sleep. Not so much a nap as an afternoon avoidance of the house, the compound prying eyes like black beads on a million flies, a chance to unmourn and unmoor and drift for a short time from the weight of our inevitable future and repulsive past. Voices from the other rooms rise and fall with laughters and arguments, orgasmic moans, the static drone of family life. It's never truly quiet here, and I hate it. I miss my silent bedroom, my silent home. I think about my aunt's screams, her voice howling. What is that? Oh, God, 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 get it out of me. What is that thing? She cried like a betrayed child. Faint light sifts through the slats of the door as my eyesight adjusts. If I squint, it becomes a floating gate in the cosmic dark, an entrance to another world, or an entrance back to this one. I can take no chances. I reach across the stars, expanding until the gate is gone. The stars are gone. The sound of my breath is gone. I open my eyes. Shadows play across the light, followed by soft, rhythmic tapping. Someone's calling out our names. I sit up, wide awake now, wiping the pools of sweat away from under my arms and breasts as I pick my way across my brother and open the door a crack. <sighs> the sallow, dour face of my permanent shadow, Aunt Margaret. I become so used to her following us around, inserting herself into every waking and sleeping moment. I'm surprised she already wasn't on our side of the door. It's over, she drones. They're leaving the house. Bethany wants you. Now.
Behind me, Jules stirs at the sound of mother's name, casting her on the mattress for his clothes. We leave the door cracked open, dressed in half-light and hasty vestiges of our fever dreams, then make our way back through the now almost empty house, noting how the sun has sunk behind the western tree line, sending last orange and purple flares of the day into the darkening sky. We slept longer than I thought. Outside, the neighborhood has sprung into a kind of semblance of normalty. Street lamps shine over black tops and driveways, and porch lights glow next to wide-paned windows basking in the brilliance of living room lamps. Even with the great forest crowding all around us, the houses look cozy and inviting in the dark. I don't even have to squint to pretend to see it. Like a painting, I think. Not natural, but enticing, even beautiful, precisely because it's not the real thing. So strange, you can't look away. Hand in hand, we walk down the dirt driveway, taking the long way past the lawns and down the gravel and concrete sidewalk, instead of cutting through the hedges. My heart flutters in my chest and it's difficult to catch a full breath. People are still hanging about the front, about the front door of our house, talking in low tones under the porch light. A few Tacoma relatives stand to the side, their faces shocked and pale as they hiss their revulsion for this place to each other. Father shoots me a quick glance in between beats of his conversation with a Kitsap uncle. A woman walks past me with her daughter and son, giving me a respectful, almost mournful nod. I don't want to go inside, I say to Jules as my pace slows to a dead halt. I'm not sleeping in that closet tonight. I know, I just, I just want to go back home. We haven't done anything they sent us here to do and school is starting at the end of next month. We're already started, I don't know. I miss my life. You know we're not going back. No one said that. Jules sighs, no one has to. All my things, my bedroom, my books, the lion, tears sting my eyes and the world blurs. I left all the things behind that I really loved. It's probably all gone by now. You know that couple we left the house with probably sold everything or threw it out. Jules knows he isn't helping, but I know he feels the same. But just why didn't they tell us? I would have picked different things to bring. No one probably told them. We all really knew. We're not the stupid ones. A long silence. He's right. We listen to the sounds of the neighborhood all around us. If I close my eyes, let the dark sift over me, I can almost pretend we're home. Are we gonna end up like this? Living on this street, growing old, listening to nothing but the wind all day, while our children fuck in abandoned houses? We'll be different. I know it, and so do you. We are already. I feel like we died. Jules slips his hand around my shoulders. We're still alive. Barely. Barely is better than nothing. Are you sure? By the time we get to the porch, of the few remaining relatives have slipped off into the night, and it's just father waiting for us, his glasses catching the light as he clacks the edge of his pipe against his teeth. They think of that night at the beginning of summer. That was centuries ago. Your mother went to bed. She was exhausted. She helped with a birth? A little. It was hardly a birth. Your great aunt Cecily and a few of the elders who work in the labs took the bodies back there for autopsies or, or whatever they do with them. I don't know. I can't imagine. All the things that make them feel important, that the great work is being done, as your grandmother says. Whatever that means. Father's disdain for his own family is like an oil slick, coating each word as it comes out of his mouth. He misses his old life as much as we do, even though he seems to want to do as little go to go back as mother. I don't understand their passivity. I don't understand mine. 
He moves the pipe to the side of the house and taps gently against the cedar boards. Tobacco ash drifts to the ground. Behind me, I hear Margaret snort in disgust. She thinks we're animals. I'm headed to bed too. Don't stay up too late. Why, Jules asks, what are we doing tomorrow? Are my tests tomorrow, I ask? A thin smile oozes across father's face as he steps into the house. We're doing the same thing as yesterday. Same as the day before. Nothing. This is fucking ridiculous. I can't help shouting and stamping my foot against the ground as if I were five again. Why don't we just leave? Why don't we just pack our bags and walk out of here and find a way home? No one is stopping us. Father steps forward. He's not staring at me and I turn. Her? I point at Margaret. She can't stop us. You're right, Margaret replies. I don't need to stop you. Why don't you ask yourself why you just don't go? Go ahead. Go right now. Just leave. Oh, and make sure you look into the porch light when you close the door. She points up and our gaze follows. Wave goodbye to everyone at the lab who's watching you right now. Cold fear fills the air. Jennifer, get inside now. Father disappears and Jules follows. A look of resignation on his face. A wave of despair washes over me. Margaret won't go inside until I go inside, and I can't even just stand out here alone. I'm never alone. I just want to be alone. Do you remember the story Grandfather told you? Margaret asks. Which one? He told a lot of stories, I say. But Margaret only smiles and shrugs, and so I follow Jules inside. The house is a two-bedroom cottage with basic furnishings, small but homey, I guess, and in good condition one of the better houses along this street. Margaret locks the door behind us and turns out the porch light, then follows behind Jules as he heads to our bedroom. Every night she turns down our sheets like a house servant, then stands at the foot of the bed until we're both naked and under the covers. Grandmother's orders. She knows about mother and Jules, about father and me. Jules and I aren't the only ones in trouble, according to what mother told us after she came back from the first of many dressing downs but it feels like we're the ones being punished. For now, anyway. Mother's nerves are frayed to ribbons. She knows when the real punishment comes. It'll be life-altering. She also knows that this might be the punishment forever alone in this house. Just another dead branch left to wither in an empty corner of the world. I turn off the lamp in the living room. Past the doorway, beyond the small dining room that looks out into a whole four feet of weed-covered lawn that immediately turns back into old-growth forest, thin light illuminates the entrance to the kitchen. I need to look to reassure myself that the floor is clean, that there are no traces of pain and death in this house, that I have to sleep in against my will. The mantel clock ticks and talks to itself as I tiptoe past the table and chairs. The little roll-top desk where my mother sometimes sits for hours listening to the multitude of small inland island nations, stations on the black transistor radio, men and women sermonizing in fevered voices of the spreading anti-vaxxer wars, and the disease-ridden army that bears towards us, the waves of, waves of crop disease and dust storms sweeping across the plains, the shuddering of the earth and the oceans along the crumbling coasts, the decadence of the citadel cities that lock us all out of their shining towers, the coming of dark gods, any dark god, repentance and destruction, the winking out of the sun, the end of all mankind. 
I round the corner and stop. The stove light is on, as well as the light over the kitchen sink. At the back of the room, between the refrigerator and the counter, a wide tidal flood of deep brown spreads out halfway down the narrow floor, bright red in streaks where it hadn't started to dry. Brown footprints at the edges and long fingerprints smeared against one covered door. You can clean it up now. I gasp and whirl around, my heart thundering in my chest. Margaret stands at the kitchen entrance, barely visible, all shadows. Or you can clean it up tomorrow. Your choice. She disappears back into the house. I don't know how long I stand there, but it doesn't matter. Time is meaningless in the shadows of mountains. The house settles and grows cold. I slip out of my shoes and place them at the edge of the kitchen floor, then walk barefoot into my dead relative's congealing blood and placental fluid as I reach for the sponge. Thank you for coming. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. I'm Rajan Khanna. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.